0: Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you're about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors. Today, we're hyped to be introducing you to Sean Senton-Rogers partner and co-founder of ProFounders Capital. ProFounder invests 500K to $2 million tickets into young digital startups that fix broken customer experiences. They've supported and invested in made.com, get your guide, Unity slash amplifier, small giant games and others. Sean also happens to be a reoccurring name on the Forbes Midas list. So if you need more than our validation that he's worth taking cues from, there you go. Want to be on top of who the best up and coming emerging VCs in Europe are and maybe even invest with them? Register for our newsletter at theemergingvc.substack.com and be the first to get in the
1: know. John, welcome to the show and for finding the time to chat with us here at the European VC.
2: It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Happy New Year to you both. Although I suppose for posterity now, we will know this was recorded in early January <laughs> at some
1: point. Yeah, yeah. We also just shared a lot of stories about Christmas and our endeavors with Omicron. <laughs> so let's not tire the listeners about that. But instead, I want to dive deep on your story about getting into VC because you've got quite a story.
2: Yeah, indeed. And the story, I suppose, has multiple levels to it as well, right? So I think most of the listeners will be able to detect that I have an accent that is not British British. (laughs) So American, by birth, spent obviously a long time there. And so I think that the first question actually is, why am I here in Europe? Even that is quite nuanced, right? So I came over on what was supposed to be a one-year gig. Back in 2005, so I had known the team from Benchmark Capital in the U.S. And at the time, there was Benchmark Capital Europe here in London, which is now Baldurton Capital. So I met the team, had a lot of good conversations with them, and they said, "Hey, how would you like to come to Europe, learn a little bit about investing here for a year?" And I thought that sounds absolutely amazing. I'll be able to spend some time in London, travel to Copenhagen or Paris or whatever it might be, and then I'll go back to the U.S. because, obviously, as an American, that's the place to be. And I fell in love on many levels with the opportunity in Europe. So I fell in love with London as a city. I fell in love with the European startup ecosystem and I realized there was massive opportunity here. You know, every day I wake up absolutely thrilled to be able to be an investor in European tech companies. I listen founders have have great jobs. I have the best job in the world. I honestly do believe that I get to meet every single day a good number of founders. I get to help them along their journey and hopefully assist in some way as they become successful, if they become successful. But as far as, as venture capital, YVC. VC? So I'm an engineer by training. I then worked as a consultant. I had a very short stint in trying to set up my own middleware software company, a very long time ago. It turns out it's really hard to be a, a founder, but I really enjoyed working with early stage companies. Given my skill set, I thought trying to flip to the investing side back in 2005, five six could be interesting. And so I ended up spending a number of years with Benchmark Europe and then Profounders founders for the last decade as well.
1: You said something there that you started out over here as part of a U.S. fund. And, you know, we all know that back then <laughs> the, the U.S. funds weren't Absolutely happy about investing in Europe. So I'm curious, what did you see in Europe that most funds didn't? The startup ecosystem was small.
2: It's hard to describe how small it was <laughs> back in 2005, six. Right? I mean, there were ten venture funds in London. There were two up in the Nordics, and then there were a few in Munich and a couple in Paris. And That was it. There was no Portuguese ecosystem. There's no Spanish ecosystem, etc. But that said, I think what I was impressed by was the flattening of the curve and no COVID pun intended. But honestly, I think what we saw was that European founders were leveling up with U.S. founders. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? So the world was getting smaller thanks to podcasts, thanks to even things like TechCrunch, etc. But it was much easier for European founders to understand what it takes to succeed on a global level. And then on top of that, technology that allowed them to compete on a global level came as well, right? So, I mean, back in 2005, there was barely AWS. You'd have to spend money on racks and servers to be able to build your company. Guess what? AWS made it cheaper. Google Advertising made it that any company sitting here in London could target people in the U.S. and start to sell a product to them. Even global logistics chains, which I know are falling apart now, meant you could build a product here and sell it into the U.S. And so I saw this massive flattening of the curve, so to speak, between the U.S. opportunity and the European opportunity. And in fact, there's arbitrage, right? In Europe, the reason the U.S. investors are now looking here is that it is relatively cheap compared to the U.S., And there's great founders all over Europe
1: you have a pan-European strategy, and we'll dive into that in just a second. But I'd love to hear that arbitrage point. We're seeing it flatten a bit. It's not as severe as it has been. But we definitely also have in Europe an arbitrage opportunity from the East to the West, and even Germany, France, and so on, to the UK, and London in particular. So I'm curious to hear just your thoughts on the arbitrage opportunity inside Europe.
2: Yeah, I mean, the arbitrage opportunity is really mostly driven by the operating cost structure of the business, right? So if you you're in San Francisco, it's going to cost you half a million dollars. I mean, I'm not kidding, half a million dollars for a top-notch engineer. And when you build that all out, running a company is expensive, right? It's not like expensive as when you have to sort of build servers yourself, but it's more expensive than it would be in London. And the same way as you go to other markets, the cost of living is much, much lower. So the ability to build a team and operate is kind of there. And so what you see in the early stages is you need less money to get up and running, hence the valuations are slightly lower. But once you get to later stages, money is more mobile, capital is more available, investors are willing to travel more. And so therefore, if you're sitting here in London, and you say, okay, well, that first round was relatively cheap over there, I can get in a little bit cheaper than I might be able to in London, just because of that price pressure the entire way up. And so, by the way, this is this is also going away. So this is not a long-term sustainable thing, right? The world is going to continue to get flat. But the arbitrage opportunities exist in different places, right? It used to be, oh, we will build in Berlin because it's cheaper than London. Now people in Berlin are saying, oh, we'll build in Poland because it's cheaper to hire engineers there. People in Poland are saying, actually, you know what? We're going to go actually to Morocco and find engineers there because it's cheaper there. And you see this sort of cascading effect. So it'll be there for a while, but at least in Europe, I think that our opportunity arbitrage Is starting to lessen.
1: On your fund level and portfolio construction, is it something that you think about as part of your strategy, or is it the best team wins wherever they are
2: placed? It's the latter. So we are unabashedly a pan-European seed stage fund. There aren't many that try to do that. Most folks try to say, well, we're either quite geographic specific, so we focus on Nordic businesses, we focus on UK businesses, French businesses. We believe there are great founders all over Europe. It's not a joke we put into our legal documentation that we could invest into any eurovision song contest country and we did that because it is a little bit of a joke and it's quite fun we originally thought we could do uefa football but we decided uefa is way too corrupt so we went with eurovision as the description it's a particularly broad definition of europe as you guys know but we did that because we believe there are great founders all over europe now we have to try to find those great founders all over europe but from our perspective we don't have any hard and fast targets about X percent needs to be in this market, X percent needs to be that market. Generally speaking, we target two thirds of the investments onto the continent and a third here in the UK. And that's because this is home based for us, so it's definitely a little bit easier. But over the course of 2021, we made a first investment into Iceland which, by the way, is a great Eurovision country to be able to mark off. We also invested into the Netherlands for the first time. I think Belgium, but that might have been late 2020 when we invested into Belgium as well. So we know there are great founders all over Europe, and we don't want to restrict ourselves to not working with those founders.
3: I actually think what you said is a perfect segue into a slightly different topic because you are pan-European, you have a pan-European strategy. But you've started with a pan-European strategy from day one, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Indeed. Many people advising emerging managers that I know would say, don't do that. <laughs> focus on your market, start small, focus on your networks and go from there. So I'm actually super interested in hearing, you know, that story of starting with that broad geographic scope from day one. And what were the implications of that, even on an operational level?
2: The first implication is that we used to travel our asses off. We were in Berlin once a month. We were in Helsinki once every six weeks. We were in Lisbon every few months. And you kind of add that up, and someone from the team was on the road every single week. And so clearly, the last couple of years have taken a dent on that side of it. It probably wasn't very environmentally friendly what we were doing as well, (laughs) but that was the way we did it. And so that worked in the early years where you could parachute into a market once a month, meet relevant players, meet companies, and use that as the base. From which to build. that served us well for many, many years. I mean, clearly, as the markets have gotten more competitive from a venture perspective, as there are more and more founders, it's harder to parachute into a market once a quarter and say, hi, I'm here. Remember us, yeah. please work with us. And so we've had to evolve as well. We have to lean on what we're good at. And what we're good at is, A, we work our asses off for the companies, but also we are fantastic partners, partners for those companies and partners for other venture funds as well. And so you touched on the regional funds, if you want to call it, the geographic specific funds, we're good friends to those. In fact, 75% of the deals that we do are introductions from local venture funds that say they're doing a deal and they want an international partner. And we're basically a really good partner to them. We don't try to steal deals. We're not going to go in there and take it away from them, outbid them on pricing, We 100% respect intros, and then we bring sort of an international perspective, an international network, help the companies raise the next round out of London. We help the companies raise the next round out of the U.S. I used to also go to the U.S. quite a bit and build up strong relationships with the U.S. investors. And so that's kind of the way we've had to work now in the current environment to try to operate on a pan-European basis. I
1: very much believe in following the digital footprint rather than the physical footprint of fund managers. But as you said, you're also bringing a carbon footprint. <laughs> and I'm curious to hear what's your thinking as a fund manager around you know, traveling time and how you actually work with founders more digitally And how you make that work and argue the case to founders
2: let's be honest we're all figuring out this new paradigm and there's no right answer yet i'm a firm believer that we need some level of person-to-person interaction and i think if you have a base of that you can then build the digital interaction but i think purely digital relationships are difficult right and so trying to balance that with the fact that we are technology investors we need to leverage technology Nothing surprising about that, right? So why are we not changing what we do in the face of new emerging technologies? And so I do think the biggest change that I've seen over the last two years is the frequency of communication. I think when people would travel to Berlin for a board meeting, you kind of have this set in stone. Okay, in March, I'm going to be going to Berlin and we will chat then. I think what all these new tools – by the way, I'm going to include WhatsApp in this, right? I mean, I think WhatsApp has been a godsend for – asynchronous frequent communication. I mean, I have WhatsApp conversations with every group of investors, every management team, and then every management team and investors together. And so sometimes you actually send the wrong message to the wrong group. You have to be careful about it. Well, I've sent a message to a group and five seconds later, someone texts furiously to say, wrong group, wrong group. Like this is not the investors only. Found Founders are included or, or vice versa, right? Investors That's included. That's yeah.
1: exactly what David did as well.
2: for <laughs> me. I
3: just started writing nonstop with emojis, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> delete the message, delete the message.
2: <laughs> no, but, but I think we basically adopted just far more free communication, which actually is honestly what we want, right? Because what we always tell founders is, it's not about a board meeting. Actually, I don't even care about a board seat. The reason VCs want a board seat, it's not actually about the power and control of board votes. Because frankly, if you're in a situation where you're going around the room and counting board votes around something, yeah. you're kind of screwed, right? You're in a really tough situation. We do it because actually what we want to do is we want to have a seat at the table to be involved in the conversations. And so that's a board seat to make it happen, fine. But actually, if we can just have frequent communication. And so I would say with over half the companies, I have a call set up every two weeks. Um standing call. Just sit down and chat. It can be founder troubles. It can be hiring. It can be partnership strategies. It can be concerns on go to market and whatever it might be. But actually, I find that is far better than having a quarterly board meeting. We've evolved quite a bit, I think, on the way we communicate and interact with companies. Now, at a group level, I think we've got a tricky situation now that we all have to deal with. So I think when everyone is virtual, when everyone is on a video chat, it's fine. What's brutal is when half the people are in a video chat and the other half are in a room together. And that we haven't solved yet. Maybe there's some weird telepresence things, whatever it might yeah. be. I, I don't know. VR, because I, I do love VR. Maybe that's part of it. But it just it doesn't work. Because guess what happens? People in the room forget about the people on video. People on video start doing email. They're less engaged. Then, therefore, people in the room forget about them even more. And you're in this vicious cycle sort of downward. And so we haven't solved that yet. But, yeah, I mean, listen, coming back, Andres, to your question, I definitely will be traveling Anywhere near as much. When I do travel, it will be for a more meaningful period of time. So instead of jetting in and out to Barcelona for the day, I will go and spend four or five days and properly engage with the broader ecosystem.
3: You're basically talking about the tech democratization. I find it interesting because first time we spoke, you said that that was actually something that actually informed a lot your decision making into starting Pro Founders, you know, that you wanted to seize that opportunity and fast forward to today it just it just that democratization speed just increased ridiculously but connected to that i'm really interested to hearing like how you evolved profounders from day 1 to profounders today what has changed and how have you kept uh, yourself competitive and diversified
2: many layers to answer that question right if i take you back to 2010 2011 as i mentioned a few more funds being set up we were part of this wave of, at the time, what were called micro VC funds. And the reason we existed was there were a number of quite large sort of multi-hundred million dollar venture funds in Europe. But what we saw was that the cost of setting up a company had actually dropped dramatically. And again, this comes back to cloud computing, Google advertising, et cetera. And so companies didn't need $5 million to get product market fit. With one to two million, they could get product market fit. And so we said, you know what we should do? We should right-size the VC industry go in, be able to write $1 to $2 million checks for that prove or disprove phase of a company's life. And then if they are approved, they can then go out and raise a more meaningful round at hopefully a, a higher price. And we weren't the only ones that saw this, right? I mean, amazing funds like SeedCamp and Point9 and Lifeline and others were all set up basically all around the same thesis, which was we can do something different in the VC space. Our commitment to investing early has not changed. So we still say we would like to be the first institutional investors into companies. And that's what it was then. That's what it is now. What it does mean, though, is that the round sizes have definitely moved up thanks to EIS here in the UK. Tax credits, the number of successful entrepreneurs that have become angel investors, etc., etc., the amount of competition out there a seed round went from being one million to being sort of four million in the last 10 years. By the way, this is great for founders, because for the same dilution, they're now getting four million as opposed to one to two million. So definitely works to their benefit. So definitely what's changed, like I said, is the amount of competition there for the pricing and the structure. The quality of the founders has improved dramatically. We have to stick to what we know, so we're not going to change the stage where we invest. We're passionate believers that the most impactful stage in a company's life cycle. Is that sort of first go to market, that first time you generate real customer traction, you start to get data on lifetime value, you start to understand cost to acquire, all those sort of metrics. That's where we love to invest. And so that will not change. So our product offering, if you will, is the same first institutional round of capital across Europe, into certain verticals that, that we love. How we deliver on that offering has had to change. When we first set up pro founders, we only raised money from entrepreneurs, which is actually why we called ourselves pro-founders. It's not that we're more profound than anyone else, but it's that we were there for founders, by founders. Guess what? That's not that unique anymore. Every venture fund raises from entrepreneurs now. And so even how we market ourselves, how we present ourselves, our differentiation has had to sort of modernize and keep up with the market, right? And it's no different than any other business. You know, you get competition, markets change, you have to sort of keep up and present and modern in what you do. And so we've had to do that as well. And so we have the same offering packaged and delivered in a different way. What founders need now is different. I mean, previously, 10 years ago, you could make good introductions to people and, and help them on hiring, etc. Even that, that, that's not what a VC does anymore, right? I mean, we think actually... The value add from a VC has changed. It's much more about those one-to-one personal relationships and being a sounding board. Honestly, that's what it comes down to now. It's not about the money. It's plenty of money out there. It's how are you going to work alongside the founder and be there as they make really critical, tough decisions.
3: I have to follow up that with another question, which is quite funny, you being an American. (laughs) How did the competition from U.S. funds that are more and more coming into Europe affect this reinvention process of yours as well as pro founders? How do you look at this?
2: Honestly, as a very early stage fund, it doesn't impact. Because if you look at the European funds that come over, they come over in two ways, right? So ones that have set up operations here in the last five years, for the most part, Don't do very early stage. I know Sequoia has a kind of a scout program, but but in reality, they're writing 10 to 20 million dollar checks. Lightspeed, Sapphire, General Catalyst, et cetera, they do late A and B. So we're investing at PreSeed and seed. And so I'm much more worried about a new venture fund being set up in Spain by some ex-founders than I am about the US guys. The US guys is fantastic. You know what they do? They come over here, they bring more capital to a later stage, and they help the ecosystem develop at that next level. Yeah, and
1: that is, I think, also where our ecosystem lacks the most. But let's shift the topic to your promoter strategy, because I think that's quite interesting. You started really engaging with friends and partners and making them something that isn't a venture partner, but it's something that's completely integrated into your strategy, and and you're even giving it one of your super sexy names of being a promoter. (laughs) So I'm curious there. Tell us all about
2: it. Yeah, Andres, you picked up on our uh, weak attempt at branding, right? We are pro founders. (laughs) And so we have a whole range of wait for it programs, and uh, (laughs) one of them is the promoter promoter strategy as well. (laughs) and uh, listen promoters was born out of the fact that we couldn't travel as much yet we do want to have some level of eyes and ears into local markets it's a twist on a concept that exists has existed for a while right so there are sort of scout programs i know sequoia is famous for their scout program there are venture partner roles that some people have we want to do something a little bit different right we are all about collaboration we're all about promotion of certain ecosystems, no pun intended. And so we didn't want to compete with our friends at Lifeline, our friends at Kibo or K-Fund, our friends at Headline or System One in Germany. And so we didn't want to hire someone full-time in Finland, because that is a basically direct shot over the bow from naval battle terminology to kind of um, compete with them, right? And so we weren't going to do that. But we wanted people that were sort of part of the ecosystem, people that were involved with founders and can basically just connect us in a nice way. And so we have Oskari in Finland, we have Andrea in Portugal, and we have Federico in Amsterdam that are promoters. And they are partially integrated in the team. They commit to spending half a day to a day a week on pro founders related matters, but really it's just supposed to be what they do on a regular basis. So Oskari had worked at Wave Ventures, which is a student run pre-seed venture fund. He then became a founder. He runs a couple of businesses they are digital media-related entities. They're not sort of raised on the treadmill of venture capital startups, but he's a founder. He's a founder. He's building two businesses in Helsinki, and he's part of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. He meets founders all day long. So what he does now, he says, oh, by the way, you should meet pro-founders. By the way, you should also meet Lifeline. Let me connect you with them. But he's just making sure We're on the radar. He then joins on our Tuesday morning calls just to get a sense of what else ProFounders is looking at. And it's a way for him to learn a little more about venture capital, to interact with other founders in a different way. But he's not changing what he does. He's out there building his company. Andrea in Portugal was the founder of Gleam, which sold to Farfetch. She now has a new startup. It's not super techie, but it is a clothing brand for women's golfers. She's been a founder of a tech company that sold to Farfetch. She was tech liaison for Farfetch. She is well known to the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And she just talks about ProFounders when she meets people. The key thing in all these programs is we want people aligned with the ProFounders operating model and people that are going to make good recommendations, good intros for us. right? And so I have no problem with the scout models. I think it's great for, and certain people have made it work. We're a small fund. We can't just give someone a million euros and say, have fun, spend it, let us know what happens. So we need to make sure that there's sort of skin in the game and that when they make a recommendation, they are truly committed to it, right? Because it's very easy to spend someone else's money. That works obviously very, very well for others. We have a slightly different twist on how we incentivize them, but just just to say like they are fully aligned with making sure that we're successful together on those opportunities.
1: I'd love to divestee as you're willing to on the different models because it's something that a lot of people in our audience are considering the gps considering if they should do it the aspiring managers considering should i actually go for a scout role or should i not and how will it be perceived and so on so i'd love to hear you you know juxtapose the different models yeah. because i'm sure you've gone through all of this when you designed the pro founder program
2: we thought a little bit about it i don't want to overstate how knowledgeable we are about them <laughs> and so i obviously don't have the inner workings of the sequoia scout model and like I said, I mean, they continue to double down on it. So from their perspective, it works Works. uh, incredibly well. You know, we face a number of constraints as a small fund, right? And, And we like being a small fund because we think it's easier to return capital off a smaller fund, easier to get into carry, proverbial carry. We don't want to run a huge team. We like having a small lean and mean sort of team as well. If I think about different ways in which people extend their funds, there are a few, right? So- Andreessen Horowitz has 400 people at heard now, mm-hmm. and they have a full-blown recruiting team, marketing teams, content teams, corporate reach out, et cetera. And they run what I call a full stack venture capital model where they say, basically, whatever you need, we got it. You need marketing help. You want to meet the CEO of Cisco. We can all assist with that. It works very well for them as their $9 billion in new capital last week Mm -hmm. shows. And then there are people that run a thin stack venture capital model. Benchmark capital in the US is probably the best example, right? There's sort of seven or eight partners and that's it. There's no 400 people, there's no media empire, there's no 15 people in recruitment, et cetera. They run, and, and they, they do insanely well as well. So we tend towards the thin stack venture capital model, then the full stack venture capital model ourselves. But then we thought about different ways in which one could extend. A few examples out there, there's the EIR program, where you basically encourage someone to come and build a, a new business within the auspices of your fund. There's the venture partner model, which I guess ostensibly is having a part-time person who is an investor but might do something else as well with you. And then there's the scout model where you basically give folks – Capital to invest into startups, sort of on your behalf, but they make the investment decisions themselves. We obviously aren't going to run the full stack venture capital model. We just can't afford to on a, as a small fund. The EIR program, in a virtual world, there's no real benefit to someone offering them office space anymore okay. and having them join meetings. Yes. So it doesn't really work, I think, in the current environment. And so for us, we did think a little bit about venture partner and scout. Venture partner tends to go to someone who is more experienced, someone who might have been a VC or a very successful founder and those are great. We wanted people that were sort of part of the early stage entrepreneurial ecosystem, right, who were younger, who were still involved in the next generation. And so venture partners didn't necessarily work for that. And in the Scout program, you know, we like to make our investment decisions. We don't want to just give money to someone else to invest. That didn't work for us either. So it was more of a process of elimination, I suppose. But then with the twist on promoters, we have found that it's just worked insanely well for us. The quality of the companies that we get to meet, our representation into the early stage ecosystem has worked really well. So we're super thrilled with how it has panned out.
1: Pan-European? Three promoters in three destinations. How does that
2: work? Well, it's not done yet. So there will be more promoters. Now, we also won't have 15 promoters because that becomes impossible to manage and give the right level of service to each of them. But sure, we're obviously thinking about where else we can take our promoter model. And it tends to be individual-led, right? So do we find a person that we think has the right profile and the right experience to kind of fit? So we're absolutely looking at new markets. And then there's also a trade-off, if I'm honest, Andreas. Do we want to go into a market where we already are quite successful and we've number, had a number of good deals and we have a network? Or do we say, actually, you know what? We think, and we make this up, we haven't invested there. We think Liechtenstein is the next big market. And so what we got to do is we got to proactively go out and find a promoter in Liechtenstein and drive deal flow there. And we've done both, right? So in Finland, we are fortunate to have two investments that have returned upwards of 100x each. It's great. We're, we're relatively well-known. In Finland, and so we could put someone there, and their job's quite easy because people already know about Profounders. If I look at the Netherlands, when we hired Federico, we'd never made an investment in the Netherlands. We subsequently have it; kind of came together at the same time. We invested in a company called Smiler out of the Netherlands, but he has a different challenge, Federico, because not as many people know about founders right but we are actually looking at other markets so stay tuned
1: you could launch which markets right here and now and then we'll make sure that you have a bunch of aspiring managers applying.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> on that topic i want to shift a bit the conversation into something different which is particularly our audience so our audience is mostly emerging managers aspiring managers as well and recently i was made aware that you guys at pro founders you and your partner rogan are actually quite passionate about being involved in the ecosystem and being involved with emerging managers. So I'd love to hear you talk a bit about that. What do you guys think? Uh, what are you guys doing? Because I think that's really exciting.
2: Indeed. We are almost the grizzled veterans, I suppose, to some extent, right? So we've been at it for a while. One could get jealous and say, oh, all these new folks, uh, I don't know what they're doing, blah, blah, blah. We have a slightly different tack where we think the ecosystem needs to grow and will continue to grow. And like I said, we're all about collaboration. And so we try to help out as best we can. If you think about being a founder, it's almost expected now now that once you're successful, you pay it forward, right? And the reason why is because when you were getting set up, people were nice to you, people helped you out. And so we think a similar thing needs to occur in the VC world as well, right? Everyone should be paying it forward and helping out the next generation. Of managers, because from our perspective, they're the next great source of opportunities for us. The next great company could come from this new manager that we spend some time with. And so we help out in, different, in I suppose, a few different ways, right? I mean, I think we have a proactive approach to syndication. So we've never done an investment by ourselves. So we offer up as, as best we can to folks opportunities. But then we also try to assist managers in the boring things that are required by running a financial services company, right? Because in the end, people forget it's not about a few parties and you make a few investments. We are money managers. We in the UK are FCA regulated. We have entities in Jersey, Bermuda, and another entity in Luxembourg as well. The reporting, the rigor, you, you would not believe it. It's, it's fucking insane. And then on top of that, how you actually think about running your internal processes, how you make investment decisions, how you report on those decisions, a myriad of things that go into being money managers. I don't say we open source it, but we're very open with here's our documentation, here's our process, etc. with managers that ask. And sometimes it goes a little bit further. So there's a group in Spain called Enzo Ventures, which is a super micro VC fund set up by three founders who had all been entrepreneurs, two together, and they knew a third one. And they've set up a, a fund that sort of writes thirty to fifty thousand dollar checks into super early stage businesses. But they're big brother. It says on the website right that we support them, we join their investment committee meetings. Honestly, if you looked at their reporting, you would say, "Ha, huh, looks very similar to the pro founders okay. pack that that <laughs> comes together or their spreadsheet that tracks things." And it, it is. And we love working with them. So we we like to do it because we find them sort of invigorating to see the next generation at work. But let's also be realistic. We probably think we're going to get great deals from them as well, right? And so if we've got a great relationship with them, guess what? When their company's raising a year, I would hope they call up Sean and Rogan and Joe from ProFounders and go, ah, here's one of the great companies that we spoke about at that last investment committee meeting. Please meet them. You know, there's always two sides to the coin.
1: Couldn't agree more. And super applaudable what you're doing there. There's one thing on the topic of paying it forward to other VCs that I would love to touch on, which is the European culture of not sharing LPs at all (laughs) between managers. That is something that you actually see in the Valley, and I'm sure that you're familiar with that. Also, LPs to LPs or LPs to new VCs saying, you know, we'd be happy to or and feel free to share that we're investing in blah, blah, blah as well. That is not really something we're seeing in Europe. I'm curious to hear your reflections and also how you approach this.
2: You're right. There isn't much. And the reason why is because capital is more scarce from an LP perspective in Europe. In the U.S., if you think about every state university, every university in the U.S., every insurance company, every retirement plan, right? The biggest venture investor in the world is CalPERS. Actually, it's probably like Abu Dhabi now or something, but in the long time it was CalPERS. It's like the state pension organization of California, right? You don't have in Europe that level of support. Now you do have the EIF, the European Investment Fund, which has a role. And in France, actually, BPI is very involved. And France is probably at the forefront of that and this British business bank, et cetera. But there is not that bench of capital, those deep pools of capital that there are in the US. And so people get nervous because the fear is that, oh my God, I introduced that great next investor. If they do better than me, I've lost an investor. There aren't like 12 investors to fill that gap. And so it's a problem. And so what that means is people are just more careful. And so I don't think there's a short-term solution to it. Now, what is the impact of that? Is there an impact? Because I mean, frankly, it feels like there's a new venture fund being created every single day. So maybe that problem is actually solving itself. It doesn't seem to have held back the ecosystem as far as the number of venture funds being created, right? So now, yes, would it would be great if there was more sharing, perhaps, probably, but I think we're probably still a ways away from that.
1: I'm curious, um, being US-based as you are as well, I'm curious to hear your overall take on the USLP basis views on European funds. Is there anything to go for for European fund managers or?
2: Yeah, we don't have US LPs. Ours are European individuals, European family offices, and European institutions. There's definitely far more interest in Europe than there was five years ago, 10 years ago. And that speaks to the phenomenal performance of Europe, right? If you look over the last Few years, Spotify is a fifty billion dollar company. I actually haven't even looked recently. It might be might be more than that. Don't, don't know. UiPath, actually, I mean, I should look in real time to see how these share prices are holding up. But UiPath is a very meaningful company. Revolut is one of the most valuable private companies in the world. Hopin, you know, one of the fastest zero to six billion dollar companies ever. And so, more and more Americans now see that Europe is creating global leaders you know, the proof is in the pudding. General Catalyst is set up, Sequoia is set up, et cetera, et cetera. And so US LPs can get access to Europe via those entities. So maybe they don't need to invest directly into a European fund because they can invest into Lightspeed or, or Sequoia or General Catalyst, whatever it might be. But listen, when I speak to my friends at venture funds, yeah, definitely, there's way more interest in Europe from US LPs, 100%, because Europe is performing. And 10 years ago, Europe didn't perform.
3: Sean, we are running out of time, so we're going to jump into our quickfire round, which is how we always end our episodes, which are 30 to 60 second answer questions. Are you ready? Let's do it. Yes. First question, in venture, what areas excite you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? Uh,
2: Virtual reality, VR, AR, XR, whatever you want to call it. Go buy an Oculus Quest 2 put it on. It is uh, unbelievable and it's only going to get better, right? So we've invested in a company called SideQuest, which is an alternative app store. We're looking at a lot of the content side of things. It's fantastic. I put it on and I can sit on a beach in New Zealand and see penguins come by, or I can go into space and start shooting robots as they come at me. And by the way, this is like V1. If you imagine the first flight, the Wright brothers was nine seconds 30 years later, we were going across the Atlantic Ocean, or even 20 years later. So imagine VR in 10 years, right? So I I think there's massive opportunity there.
3: Second question of the quickfire round. What's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you started working in venture?
2: Being the smartest person in the room is not helpful. I sometimes take pride in asking the ridiculously stupid question because sometimes you need to go back to basics. And so pretending to be insanely smart or being insanely smart doesn't necessarily help in building a foundation for, for tech companies.
3: Final question of the cook fire. What can we expect in the future from Sean and ProFounders?
2: Is it boring to say more of the same? I mean, we (laughs) we, we wake up and we really enjoy our jobs. We like investing in early stage companies across Europe. The audience won't be able to see this, but I'm bald. But I do remember on shampoo bottles, it used to say sort of lather, rinse, repeat, and basically do the exact same thing. (laughs) And so I think we want to do that, lather, rinse, repeat. Obviously, I can't lather, rinse, repeat. But from a fun perspective, we'll keep doing what we're doing as long as we're having fun.
3: Never change a winning team, right? (laughs) We've done this once or twice, I have to ask. What's the story behind the, the picture behind you?
2: Uh, yes, I have a picture, uh, I think it's from 1987 or 88, of Michael Jordan dunking a basketball at the all-star game in the dunk competition. So I'm of the age where I grew up with MJ sort of dominating, big basketball fan. If you ever watched The Last Dance, I was amazed that someone could be so driven to win, sometimes to the detriment, but I think it's a good inspiration for founders as well, right? I'm someone that sets the tone, steps out of the court every single day, does the best they can, leads by example, and is incredibly successful. And so I think it's a great role model for entrepreneurs.
1: Thanks a million, Sean. This was amazing. Super happy to bring someone on who is such a big proponent of both founders but also emerging managers. Amazing. Thanks a million, Sean. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.